If you turn in your Bibles with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We continue our study this morning in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And our reading will come from verses 18 through 21. We'll begin reading actually in verse 17. The text is a continuation of Paul's expression of his motivations that he says in verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us. And he continues on explaining how those who are in Christ are new creatures, are new creations. And we begin in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 with the reading. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray once again that you would open the eyes of our heart, that your spirit would fill us and illumine our minds, and that, Father, we might be sensitive to your spirit. Help us, O God, to understand your word, the greatness of the sacrifice of your Son, what you have done in reconciling the world to yourself for your glory. We pray. Amen. Just this morning, I read a story about a couple who had been married for 60 years. That's a long time. Throughout their life, they had shared everything and they loved one another very much. And they didn't keep any secrets from one another except for a small shoebox that the wife kept on the top shelf of her closet. When they got married... The wife had asked her husband to never look inside of that small shoebox or ask any questions about its contents. But what happened was that this man, his wife, became gravely ill. And he had kept that promise for 60 years and he had forgotten about the box, but he knew that he had to get his wife's things in order. So he began to clean her closet and he came upon that box and he got it down from the closet shelf and he remembered his promise. So he brought it to her at the hospital and he asked her if now they might be able to open it and she agreed. They opened the box and inside there were two crocheted dolls and a roll of money That totaled $95,000. The man was astonished. And the wife told her husband that the day before they were married, her grandmother told her 
that if she and her husband were ever to get into an argument with one another, they should work hard to reconcile. And if they were unable to reconcile, well, she should simply not say anything and crochet a doll. Well, the man was very, very touched by this because there were only two crocheted dolls in the box and he imagined that, boy, over 60 years of marriage, there were only two major incidences in which she had to crochet a doll. He was tearing in his eyes and he loved his wife even more and he asked then about the $95,000 to which his wife said, well, every time I crocheted a doll, I took it down to the craft fair and sold it for $5. (laughs) Broken relationships. They affect every single person here, don't they? Broken relationships, whether it is early on in life, those of you who have parents of young children, you're always playing referee because they're always in some little fight, some little argument, some little dispute, and you've got to keep them and make them make up. You've got to tell them how to ask for forgiveness, to say they're sorry, and to hug one another. And then the kids grow up, and now they face things, perhaps at school or among friends, whether it's bullying or violence sometimes. Kids... When they're teenagers, sometimes they get in trouble with the law. They'll riot against police. And then they grow older. And they get married. And you look at marriages and what do you see? Oftentimes, without exception, there are disputes, arguments. Sometimes domestic violence and divorce. Our government can't seem to be unified, let alone the governments in the world. They're facing protests against the people of the land. And people want more and more freedom. Broken relationships and conflict. All you have to do is turn on the news. And the politics that are happening now. Candidates are attacking one another at every single point that they can. And you look around the world. The world has been affected in their relationships with one another. Whether it's war, whether it's rebellion. From the time they're children all the way to the time that they're adults. Their relationships are broken. Hurting. Because of sin, fighting and conflict. And no one who is living on this earth is immune to relationships that are broken. No one is immune ever since the beginning. When Adam took that fruit and rebelled against God and ate of that fruit, it all began. It all began. Pain and suffering. And where there are broken relationships, oftentimes... There is sadness many times for the rest of one's life unless there's reconciliation, unless there's humility, unless there's forgiveness, unless there's confession. But when that happens, there's incredible joy, isn't it? When people make up. And I don't doubt that everyone here has had some personal experience, whether it's a person and their children whether it's your brother or your sister, whether it's your spouse, whether it's a coworker, or a longtime friend, there's been some situation in which you've gotten into some conflict with somebody in which there had needed to be some type of reconciliation. And maybe that hasn't even been made up yet. But God's desire is that it be reconciled. God's desire is that we be like Him. God desires that we be reconciled to lost 
people. He wants to be reconciled. And He is the one, it says in this text, who reaches out to people so that they can be reconciled to the message of salvation, the message of God's grace. Here, the Scriptures tell us about God's desire. Scriptures tell us about how Paul is motivated by love because he fears God. He has a humility of heart and how we are all new creatures. And then he begins to tell the Corinthians of what God has done, of what God has done to bridge the relationship, to reconcile the relationship with us who are sinners, who are lost. He reconciles that relationship. He gives us the ministry of reconciliation and he wants us to see ourselves as what? ambassadors of this message and then he explains how God did it what was the means of that reconciliation that God did so we look at what God did first God reconciles us to himself verse 18 it says now all these things Paul writes who are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. All of these things refer to the things that Paul had just written about. He had written about what? The fact that they were new creatures. The old has gone, the new has come. And it is God, it is God by His initiative who reconciles us to Himself. That word means to restore a relationship that has been broken. Because of man's sin, mankind's relationship with God has been broken. And it is God who reconciles. It is God who takes that initiative. People sometimes think, well, I've made up with God. I've done my, my duty. I've done my good deeds or whatever to make up with God. It is God, though, who reconciles us to himself. If you look in your Bibles in the book of Corinthians, uh, Colossians chapter 1, the book of Colossians, just a couple of books forward. Colossians chapter 1, 19 through 22, it tells us about what God did and the reconciliation that he did. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, it reads this way. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. You see, you and I were, as the text says, alienated. We were separated. We were, in fact, hostile towards God. We were engaged in sinful deeds. Before you and I became Christians, before you and I gave and placed our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, you and I were not only alienated, but we were hostile towards God. It doesn't matter how nice you think you were. It doesn't matter how good of a moral character you had. It doesn't matter how kind or how generous or how giving you were. You were hostile. I was hostile to God. We were separated from God. But it is God who reached out to us and saved us. How did He save us? 
By the shedding of His Son's blood on the cross. As 1 John 4.10 tells us, In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us, just as we sang about, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. To be the propitiation for our sins. He sent His Son to die to be the propitiation for our sins. What does propitiation mean? We were talking about this in our theology small group on Friday. The idea of expiation and propitiation. And the idea is this. Propitiation in a nutshell means the satisfaction of God's wrath. You see, if you knew of a man, for example, hypothetically, who was working in a factory or a manufacturing plant and he saw some dangerous safety issue and he reported it to his boss and he warned his boss that this could potentially be catastrophic or tragic and then his boss didn't do anything and so he reported it to the company and he let everybody know that this is a dangerous thing and he comes to work one day and that very thing happens and it happens to him And it happens to him such that he is burned over most of his body. In fact, it crushes his spinal cord and he is paralyzed from the neck on down. And he needs full-time care for the rest of his life. You can imagine the suffering that he would go through. The company decides that they need to repay that debt. And so through a series of legal decisions... They pay a huge sum of money to him that will take care of him and all of his medical needs for the rest of his life and everything is settled. Then legally, legally, a debt has been satisfied. It has been expiated. It has been paid for. That is expiation. But you can imagine this injured man who warned his company time and time again how when he thinks about that company, how he could struggle with resentment and bitterness or even hatred. And even when he hears the name of that company, how he could become angry, abhorring the very name of that company which was negligent towards him. That his wrath, his anger has not been satisfied. Propitiation means that when Christ died on the cross for our sins as a propitiation for our sins, not only did He pay the debt, but He paid and took the wrath of God, satisfying that wrath that was directed at those who do not come to know Him. When Christ died, He paid not only for the penalty, but He paid And he satisfied the wrath of God. That is what propitiation means. Romans 5.9 tells us much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So, what did God do? He reconciled us to himself. By sending His Son to die on the cross for our sins, paying not only the debt, but satisfying the wrath that He gave. And He gave us, secondly, the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19. Not counting their trespasses against them. He is committed to us 
the word of reconciliation. That little phrase or not counting the trespasses against them refers to imputation. It is the imputation of what? Our sins to Christ. You see, in the Bible, there are three imputations. And this is a word that you ought to know because our sins have been imputed. You might have heard that before. Imputed means to reckon, to account to, to ascribe to. There are three imputations in the Bible. In, in the beginning, when, when Adam sinned, his sin in, was imputed to all of humanity. That's why you and I are sinners, because Adam sinned. It's not because of our own wrongdoing. Of course, we do sin and we are accountable for that. But we are born in sin because of Adam's sin, which was imputed, ascribed, reckoned, accounted to us. The second imputation is our sin as believers have been imputed onto Christ when he died on the cross and we placed our faith and trust in him. And thirdly, Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us. Now, what is that like? Earlier this year, there was a news story on ABC's Nightline made the rounds because what happened was there was a young teenage mother in Oklahoma she was a mother of a three-month-old baby. And tragedy struck this young teenage mother because her husband died on Christmas Day. Her husband died on Christmas Day of cancer just this past Christmas. And a man came to her door and knocked and just said he stopped by because he was a neighbor. And she didn't let him in. A week later, he came back. He came back with a... 12-inch hunting knife with another man began to break into her home and she could hear him trying to break the door down. And as one of the men was going for the door outside of her home to gain entry, this young mother called 911. She took her 12-gauge shotgun. She took a pistol. She put a bottle into her baby's mouth and she called the police. And when the dispatcher asked if asked what was going on she explained that there was an intruder trying to break into her home and asked she asked if she could shoot the man and the dispatcher said something to the effect that well she can't tell her whether or not she can or can't but she could do whatever necessary means it was to protect her baby and so finally one of the men broke in the door. The mom had no more time left to wait for police and she had to make a judgment call. She said, I waited till he came in the door and when he did, I shot him. I didn't know what else to do. I wanted the police to hurry and get here before I had to do it, but they didn't get here quick enough, she said. And on today's America Live, Megyn Kelly pointed out that under Oklahoma's law, they have a castle law where it's legal to use deadly force against an intruder. It's not in all states, but in certain circumstances. The prosecution then didn't charge this woman. His accomplice ran away. In fact, later on, his accomplice turned himself in. And under the law, the accomplice will be charged with first-degree murder. And you say, well, this man, he, he ran away. He didn't, he didn't shoot anybody. Yet he was an accomplice. She wasn't guilty. It was imputed 
to the accomplice. It was ascribed to him. He was going to be charged. That parallels that idea of imputation. Although an act wasn't one's own act, the consequences are ascribed or imputed to us, whether good or bad. Imputation means to ascribe or to reckon or to attribute. And I'm not making a judgment call as to whether or not she did what was right or wrong. All I'm saying is that what was or could have been imputed to her was imputed to this man. And when Adam sinned, it was imputed to us, that sin. That's what the Bible means when it says, not counting their trespasses against them. You can imagine, she might have thought, well, am I, am I going to be charged with a crime? Will my baby be taken away from me? What will happen now to me? In fact, what happened was it ended up all over the news and she began to have a tremendous amount of support and donations poured in, etc. All sorts of things like that. And the prosecuting attorney said that he wasn't going to charge her. You can imagine what good news that would have been. That is the word of reconciliation, the good news to us. That we bear the good news that God wants people to be reconciled to Him. To come to the Savior. That is the ministry that we have. Thirdly, God's appeal for reconciliation is through us. Verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. See, we're ambassadors for Christ. And that's where we begin when we, when we think about evangelism and sharing the gospel. It begins by understanding who we are. It doesn't begin by some motivational prize that somebody's going to give you. It doesn't begin by some guilt trip. It doesn't begin by saying, well, I want this group to grow big or whatever it may be. It begins to realizing who we are. The identity of who we are. An ambassador, an ambassador's citizenship isn't in the land in which they live. That's a foreign country. Their, their citizenship is someplace else. They're mainly an envoy. They're a herald. That's what it means to be an ambassador. Their permanent residency is in the land from which they came. J.I. Packer writes, Paul considered himself Christ's ambassador. What is an ambassador? He is an authorized representative of a sovereign. He speaks not in his own name, but on behalf of the ruler whose deputy he is. And his whole duty and responsibility is to interpret that ruler's mind faithfully to those to whom he sent. Now, I don't know if you've met folks from other countries before, but... I love meeting folks from other countries and when I ask them where they're from and they'll tell me and many times they're happy to tell me about their country. They'll tell me about how beautiful it is. They'll tell me about what, what some of the foods are and what the people are like and what the culture is like and oftentimes they say to me at the end, come, you should come and visit us. You'll like it. And by that is the same, you can tell they love their country. And that is the same sentiment that's our job as well. To plead, to beg, to tell people, come to Christ. God wants to have you reconciled with Him. 
Do you know what God has done for you? Do you know that God sent His own Son so that you could be free from guilt? So that you can have eternal life. So that you can be saved. So that this life is not all the life that you have. There's a hope after you die. Things are so good. You have the blessing of bearing that message of reconciliation as an ambassador. Because God speaks through you. God speaks through you as an ambassador. Whether it's to the grocery store clerk, the person who bags your groceries, or the postal worker, or whoever it may be, you are an ambassador to them. You're an ambassador of God. And what a privilege it is as you see yourself as a messenger of God to bear that news. Just as Romans 10 tells us, right? Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him whom they've not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. It is a blessing to be an ambassador. It is a blessing to share the gospel with people that you care about, with people who are strangers, with people that don't know the Lord. I remember the first time the first time I led someone to the Lord, I was in a high school camp, you know, and I was sleeping. I was sleeping middle of the night. We had been praying for this one non-Christian friend that some of my buddies had, had invited to come to youth group. And we were, we were sleeping in, and, he, and it was dark. And he taps me on the shoulder. And he, he says he had been hearing about the gospel and what it took to become a Christian. And, and, and he said, Joey, I, I want to I be a Christian. I want to receive Christ. I wanted to go to sleep, you know. I just didn't. And so I sat with him and we talked in the middle of the night. And I explained to him and made sure that he knew what he was getting into. And I made sure that the gospel was clear. And we prayed to receive Christ that night. And it is such a blessing. And you know what I like watching on TV? They run on on some of the old channels, the old Billy Graham Crusades. You know, and they're in black and white. Some of them where they colorize them and he looks a lot younger. And there he is. He's preaching the gospel of repentance. And I always like the part where you see thousands of people stream onto... And I realize, not all, half of them are counselors, but there are so many people who will come and desire salvation because of the message. I remember a friend who was Billy Graham Crusade when he was here and he said to me, I can picture it now, he began going down and he said, come on, come on, I, I want to go down, I want to go down. And I went down with him and he prayed to receive Christ or serving at a counselor, as a counselor in those events is such a joy to see people come to know Christ. Because you know their souls are saved. You know that they won't go to hell. You know that they will not suffer for eternity. But they have received salvation. And the angels rejoice. And the heart is lifted. And you are an ambassador of that same message. To tell people about Jesus. 
that Jesus gave his life that they might be reconciled to him. His means, he made him, verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God's means, it is by what is called a penal substitutionary atonement. God made him, Christ, who was sinless to be sin. Now, it doesn't mean actual sin. Sometimes you'll turn on the TV and you'll hear a health, wealth, prosperity, gospel televangelist say that Jesus became actual sin, that he suffered in hell and that he had to be reborn. That's not true. What does it mean when it said he made him who knew no sin to be sin? This is a figure of speech. It's a figure of speech called a metinomy. Metinomy. It's a figure of speech in which you take one word and it's replaced by another word or phrase. And we use them all the time in the English language. We say to somebody maybe at work, did you get your cup of joe today? Well, that means a cup of coffee. Or we say, well, you know, during the recession, the suits on Wall Street took of all of our life savings. What do you mean? You mean the, the banks or the bankers or whoever it might be. We have short forms of metinities like shocks for shock absorbers or Hollywood, meaning the movie industry. And here the metinomy is that Christ did not literally become sin, but rather Christ bore our sin on the cross. He made atonement for our sin. He made atonement for our sin. What is known as penal substitutionary atonement. Penal meaning uh, he made or paid the penalty. Substitutionary it was in our place. And Wayne Grudem states, This has been the orthodox understanding of the atonement held by evangelical theologians. In contrast to other views that attempt to explain the atonement apart from the idea of the wrath of God or the payment of the penalty for sin. Remember? That's what propitiation means. That that Christ paid not only the debt, but the wrath of God in the atonement. John MacArthur writes, On the cross, God treated Jesus as if He had lived our lives with all of our sins so that God could then treat us as if we lived Christ's life of pure holiness. Theologian Millard Erickson writes, The idea of Christ's death is a sacrifice offered in payment for the penalty of our sins. It is accepted by the Father as satisfaction in place of the penalty due to us. And this is important to understand. Why? Because there are thoughts that are swimming around evangelical Christianity today. Some Christians will ascribe to some writers like Brian McLaren, who is a prolific figure in the emerging church movement, who talks about the atonement in these words. Quote, For starters, if God wants to forgive us, why doesn't He just do it? How does punishing an innocent person make things better? That just sounds like one more injustice in the cosmic equation. It sounds like divine child abuse, you know? Another individual who gets it all wrong is Steve Chalk, who can't seem to reconcile the love of God and the wrath of God. 
by saying, John's Gospel famously declares God loved the people of the world so much that He gave His only Son. How then have we come to believe that at the cross this God of love suddenly decides to vent His anger and wrath on His own Son? The fact is that God, that the cross isn't a form of Cosmic child abuse, a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. Understandably, both people inside and outside the church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. People don't understand that the wrath of God was satisfied as well as a debt was paid for our sin on the cross. And they've come up with all sorts of theories. You can turn on the TV and you can hear a, a faith preacher preach about the ransom theory that Christ had to die and then Satan was paid a ransom to let him go. Or the moral influence theory, the example theory where oh, Christ was just a good example for us to follow or is an example of obedience to, to God unto death. Or that in the government theory where uh, God's demonstration was basically that his law had been broken and someone needed to be punished for that. But Franklin Johnson writes, The Christian world as a whole believes in a substitutionary atonement. This has been its belief ever since it began to think. The doctrine was stated by Athanasius as clearly and fully as by any later writer. All the great historic creeds which set forth the atonement at any length sets forth a substitutionary atonement. All the great historic systems of theology enshrine it as the very Ark of the Covenant, the central object of the Holy of the Holies. So Christ's atonement paid for your debt and my debt satisfying the wrath of God. And the Bible often illustrates this for us. And it illustrates it in the fact that it says He died and it was a completed work. It was a completed work. Hebrews 9. You turn your Bibles to Hebrews 9. This is an important passage that has implications as well. But the fact that it is a completed work. Hebrews 9.25 which says... As the author there writes, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place yearly with blood, not his own, for then he would have to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. See, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And it was a completed work. And that is an important fact. Why? Because it stands in contrast to what Roman Catholics believe, for example. Wayne Grudem writes, This New Testament emphasis on the completion and finality of Christ's substitutional death stands in contrast to the Roman Catholic teaching that in the Mass there is a repetition of the sacrifice of Christ. Out of their own writings, John O'Brien, a Catholic 
priest, who has helped many Catholics understand the importance of the Mass, has written a book called The Faith of Millions, The Credentials of the Catholic Religion. And in it, he writes this. When the priest announces the tremendous words of consecration, this is the Mass, he reaches up into the heavens brings Christ down from His throne and places Him upon our altar to be offered up again as the victim for the sins of man. It is the power exercised by the priest greater than that of saints and angels, greater than that of seraphim and cherubim. Indeed, it is a power greater even than the power of the Virgin Mary, While the Blessed Virgin was a human agency by which Christ became incarnate a single time, the priest brings Christ down from heaven and renders him present in our altar as the eternal victim. The priest brings Christ down from heaven and renders him present on our altar as the eternal victim for the sins of man, not once but a thousand times. You ever wonder why? Catholic churches have a crucifix with Christ hanging on there. It is a memorial to the suffering, the actual suffering in the Mass of Christ over and over again. You see, Mass is not like communion. We have an ordinance called communion. It is symbolic. It is a memorial in which we remember the body and the blood of Christ. And we remember the cross as that symbol of a risen Savior who conquered death. As a risen Savior who conquered death because God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. A finished work. So Christ bore our sins on the cross. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. What happened on the cross? Christ died. He suffered for our sins. He paid the penalty. He paid the debt. He satisfied the wrath. And when God looks at Christ on the cross, He sees our sin. When God looks at us, who have placed our faith and trust in Him, He sees the righteousness of Christ. Christ, righteousness, clothes us. Our Sin has been placed on Christ. And that is how God, that is how God, in His perfection and holiness, accepts us into heaven as perfect, as perfect people, positionally. Practically in life, you're going to sin. I'm going to sin. But as people who are children of God, He sees the righteousness of Christ. We were redeemed, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Christ shed His blood that we might be clothed and covered in His righteousness. In his book, Written in Blood, Robert Coleman tells a story of a little boy. A little boy whose sister needed a blood transfusion. The doctor explained that 
his little sister had a disease, the same disease that this little boy had had, but had overcome two years earlier. And her only chance for recovery and her only chance for survival for her would be to have someone's blood, someone's blood who had previously conquered the disease. And because they were of the same blood type, the boy was an ideal donor. So he went to the boy and he asked, the boy's name was Johnny, and he asked if he'd be willing to give his blood to marry his little sister. And Johnny hesitated, but and his lip began to tremble as well, but he smiled and he said, well, sure, for my sister. And the two children were then shortly thereafter wheeled away into the hospital room. Mary was, she was pale and she was thin. And Johnny was robust and healthy. And neither of them said a word. Neither of them said anything, but they saw one another and Johnny just grinned. And a nurse, she inserted the needle into his arm. And then his smile faded. And he watched as the blood was beginning to be drawn through the tube. And after the whole procedure was almost over, he finally said something. He said, Doctor, when do I die? See, only then did the doctor realize that this boy didn't understand that he only needed to share his blood, that his life wasn't going to be taken. But he had given his life for his sister. And each of us has that same condition that we are dying and that we are going to have that type of situation that threatens our life unless we accept the blood that Christ has shed by placing our faith and our trust in Him. He died for your sins and for mine so that the debt might be paid, so that the wrath might be satisfied, so that we might be ambassadors and messengers of the good news. And the question for us is, are we willing? Are we willing to tell others that Christ died for them? Are we willing to tell others that Jesus paid the debt for their sin? That all they have to do is to place their faith and trust in Christ. That all they need to do is repent of their sin and receive Him as their Lord and Savior. That God will give them life. God will give them life. That's our calling. We're ambassadors in how we see ourselves. And I pray that we might be people who will be faithful to that call. Let's bow together in prayer. Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you have clothed us in the righteousness of your Son, that our sin could be imputed upon Christ, and that Christ's righteousness might be clothed in us. We pray, O Father, that you would help us to understand the depth beyond the children's stories of Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but to understand the sacrifice and the depth of the wrath that was poured out upon us who were alienated and in rebellion, utter rebellion against you. And yet, Father, you loved us, gave giving your Son so that we might be your ambassadors 
that we might be found righteous. May we live for your glory in the light of your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.